The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the news team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday, our show about the changing nature of work and how that work is changing us. What makes you great at something? Do you know? You know, like that soccer player worthy of competing in the Olympics. Or to bring it closer to home, in my case, a writer who can win a national magazine award. Some would say the answer is simple. Talent. Some people are just born smarter or more athletic than others. But today's guest has a very different theory. Angela Duckworth won a MacArthur Genius Grant for her academic work, advancing the notion that perseverance matters more than intellect or personality when it comes to high achievement. She calls this trait grit. It's also the name of her book. Last month, Angela and I had a conversation as part of Yuck's excellent Answer Me This series. These talks aren't typically public, but I wanted to share this conversation with you all, because if you listen to Angela, you'll believe that you too are capable of achieving much more. Here's Angela. Grit is this combination of extreme passion and perseverance over really long periods um, that characterizes high achievers. And I do think we can copy those high achievers and figure out why is it that they are so committed to their goals for years, decades, even in some cases a lifetime? And um, how are they so resilient? And, and why don't they get discouraged by, by setbacks? And what kind of practice do they do, et cetera? So that's a, a, a snapshot of what grit is and, and what I'm after big picture wise as a scientist. Well, so there's there's a piece to the theory about grit that is particularly appealing to any of us who feel like we want to accomplish more of whatever matters to us in life. And that is that um, your theory is that grit actually matters more than talent or IQ when it comes to achievement. And IQ is something that, you know, maybe you can influence a little bit around the edges, but it feels pretty static. Talent, like, don't ask me to play the piano in my life. That's probably not going to work out. Um, I wasn't born with the talent. But, but grit, you would, you would advance the idea that grit supersedes those things, that it actually, it, it's more important than having either of those. So it's not that I don't think talent exists or that it's not important. My point isn't that talent doesn't matter. My point is that in the, in the years and decades um, that, that a person or an organization sets about accomplishing something great, that your long-term effort and your long-term commitment um, are surprisingly important. There's no guarantee that you're going to get a gritty person when you get a talented person. And in some cases, they can be negatively correlated slightly. So I guess it's it's more that I think the importance of long-term effort and commitment are underrated, undervalued. Um, and there's there's some research that we're, um, we're really drawn to people who are so obviously fast learners and naturally talented. And we can actually discount uh, the importance of being a striver, being somebody who really, you know, shows up early, stays late, and, you know, stays in the game longer. So being a striver is, is pretty important to this, this idea of grit. You believe that people can become grittier. How, how does one do that? Is there a formula for that, Angela? 
I, I do think people can become grittier. I actually think that um, most things about us, you know, um, are much more changeable than we think they are. You know, for example, let me just use an example. It's not grit. Many of us would be able to put ourselves, you know, on a scale from like super extroverted to super introverted. And I think many of us would say like, well, there is one thing that's not going to change like that about me. I'll tell you, like, come back in 10 years, I'm going to be the same way. But data on uh, personality change, including things like extroversion over time, suggests that people do change, you know, and not, not everyone changes, you're not going to change overnight, but there are changes. And grit, I think, is is also um, malleable. You know, when we think about talent, we think like, oh, well, that can't change, right? Like, maybe you can learn grit, but, you, but I would just say on behalf of my colleagues at Stanford, including Carol Dweck, that... Um, even even your like mathematical ability or your kind of like those things may also be um, malleable. Again, not something that you can change overnight, but not something that's entirely fixed either. I love that you brought up Carol Dweck and that's that's the whole growth mindset idea, right? Which is that it's actually more important to believe that you can change, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Carol Dweck is my personal hero. Like <laughs> magic wand, you know, you can get reincarnated as like any human being. Um, I, I think you would absolutely, for me at least, be, be Carol Dweck. And Carol asked a really good question, which is why? You know, why are some people, you know, so tenacious and resilient? Um, and she's discovered that the large reason for our, you know, reactions to setbacks is what we truly believe deep down inside about the nature of human nature. And in particular, she's found in her lifetime of research, that our beliefs about intelligence are really important. If you feel that your intellectual abilities are fixed, that then when you have a real setback, you don't really have a reason to get get going again. And and you also um, may engage in a lot of self-defensive behaviors like you know, not taking risks, not wanting to be wrong, um, not putting your hand up and participating because you don't want to look stupid and you don't want to be stupid and stupidity is something which is permanent. In contrast, a growth mindset is believing that those abilities are, are changeable and in the face of challenges, you're more likely to keep going. Angela, you and I are joined by um, tons of people all over the place who have, many of whom have written in advance with questions. You know, some of those questions actually center on like, what can I do myself? And, you know, what can I tweak here? And I just want to share one with you. I think I'm someone who regularly demonstrates grit and perseverance, but in some ways, this is working against me. This is something I've actually heard before, because I'll persevere in the face of challenges and therefore, people keep giving me challenges and problems to fix and more responsibilities with the expectations that I will, of course, persevere and handle it. And I don't know how to combine balancing grit with healthy boundaries. One of the um, downsides of grit is that, you know, that expression, like if you have something to do, you know, give it to a busy person. Well, if you're that busy, productive, gritty person, maybe you're plate will runneth over with, you know, everybody's um, obligation. By the way, there are gender differences here too. And disproportionately women are asked to do like that extra thing, go that extra mile. Um, and they're more likely to say yes. Um, and they're less likely to get credit for it. So, you know, there's a right. dynamic there um, that we should be really sensitive to. And I, I think when I started off studying grit, I, I, all I could see was the upside. But one thing I have recently really been uh, more interested in is what are the downsides? And this may be one of them. Um, being gritty isn't the only thing you need, 
right? Maybe that story um, raises another one, which is like, you know, really sticking up for yourself and like having um, a sense that uh, you are not going to be the person who is like taken advantage of. And that's not exactly the same thing as like mustering grit. And then there's a long, long list, like honesty and compassion and, you know, lots of things that are not grit, but, but, but really like my take home is like grit isn't enough. It's not a complete solution for life. And there could be downsides to grit. Also, grit isn't being the last one to turn off the lights at the office, right? It's not sticking around the longest. That would be a misinterpretation of it. Yeah, I, I, I think it's a, um, a a story that I, I remember when I was researching grit, I went to go interview this like multiple time gold medal winning Olympic uh, rower. And he uh, told me that, you know, he had gone and tried to help the Japanese uh, rowing team, like, get better and win some gold medals at the Olympics. And something that was very, very hard for him to explain, I think is elemental to the way these um, high performers, these experts practice. He said, look, it's not about like putting in like 40, 50, 60 hours of practice. I mean, it's not just about the quantity. In fact, when you're already putting that much effort in, it's actually about the quality. Like, what are you doing in those hours? And he was actually trying in vain, it turns out, to get them to practice less right? But to practice more strategically. And um, the kind of practice that this is often called in the scientific literature is deliberate practice. Um, deliberate practice is goal-directed. Deliberate practice has immediate feedback usually built in. And deliberate practice actually is like very, very strategic. It's often, and maybe um, one could argue almost always designed by a mentor or a coach. So it's absolutely not about being first to arrive and lastly in the sense that like, a 12 hour day is necessarily better than a 10 hour day. It's about quality. And if you of course have quality and you know enough quantity, I think that is what makes you uh, better at what you do. Well put. I think that that idea of anchoring and purpose is so critical. And like my version of that, is, you know, I'm a, I'm a journalist by training. I spent the first two decades of my life writing. You write the headline at the top of the page. And anytime you write a paragraph, you go back and you look at the headline and the headline takes you to where you're going to go. And there's a way in which we all should be and can be doing that in our, in our daily lives as we try to achieve what we're trying to achieve. Oh my gosh, I literally didn't know that. And that, yes, that's exactly it. But also that is very cool. And I'm not going to forget that. It will help you in your writing too. Remember the headline. Okay, exactly. Yeah. I was like, after this call, I'm going to like do some writing. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to use that. What advice do you have for a team who made a wide range of grit scores and are working towards a common goal of scaling as a company? And as you answer that question, Angela, just take a moment to explain to us the, the concept of a grit score. Yeah, um, when I first started studying high achievers, I interviewed them and I was looking for themes. And out of those conversations came a questionnaire where the items represent the themes that I heard in these conversations. And, and the questionnaire I'm talking about in particular is the grit scale. So if you uh, answer like, you know, I finish whatever I begin, setbacks don't discourage me for long, like those are the kinds of questions that aligned to these conversations when these high achievers described um, not only themselves, but particularly like people that they admired who were in their field. So as a team, if you find that you have very different grit scores, I think the thing always to do is in the, in the spirit of curiosity, in a very non-judgmental way, ask like, hmm, that's interesting. Like, why? Right. And, um, and actually having a team conversation where people look at their highest and lowest 
item scores, like, oh, I gave myself a five out of five for this, but I only gave myself a two out of five for that. I think it's just a really, really good place to start. And it's not necessarily that everybody wants or needs to be a five out of five on grit. But when you do that amount of reflection and introspection, you might discover things that you do actually want to change. And then that gives you a more specific direction uh, in which to go. Yeah, well put. How does the concept of grit fit best into the context of the current national discussions over systemic inequality and the pervasive view of the structural lack of opportunities held within certain socioeconomic and ethnic populations? It's a particularly timely question, but as, as anybody who's like stops to think really about structural inequality, about racism, it's also a centuries long uh, conversation that, you know, is long overdue, honestly. When I, when I first published Grit, um, I remember, you know, getting two kinds of reactions. You know, I got the kind of reaction like, oh, this is great. This is, this is what has helped me become um, successful. And it, and it, and it is different from talent. Okay, so I liked that kind of reaction, of course. But then I actually got criticism from people who said like, oh, you're tone deaf um, to poverty, to class, to racism, etc. Well, first I was defensive because I'm a person and I was like, no, I'm not. Then I, you know, tried to listen harder. I think the more important point is this, which is that if you care about human development, if you care about, you know, having a great company, a great team and individuals, you know, being able to, to, to do something with their lives and you absolutely have to care about structural equality and opportunity, which are not yet there at all. And the pandemic, even before the, you know, murders um, of the last month, the pandemic itself was like a, a, a light, that got shown on inequality and it exacerbated inequality, right? So in terms of like who suffered most um, economically and health-wise. So I believe that not only for the expression of your passion and perseverance, but also the development of it, like it depends on, uh, you know, support and on um, opportunities. And um, I hope the message of grit is that we should invest more, not less um, in, in those things that my critics, if, if you will, like, you know, had, had been championing. And I, you know, in this case, I think they, they couldn't be more right. Right. Well, you know, it just seems to me, Angela, that we all want grit to be uh, a silver bullet of sorts, uh, like a, a tool that will come along and just, you know, if you just rethink things a little bit and look from the left, instead of straight on, you'll be able to see that actually meritocracy does exist. And if we all change a little something about ourselves, we'll all be able to achieve it. When I suspect that's never what you intended with your ideas around grit. You know, I'm a like professor, right? Like I'm a research scientist. So like, you know, i.e. I'm a nerd, right? So it took me a little while to even understand what that particular critique was, which is like, oh, you could be weaponized. You could, for example, say like, hey, you know, my voice isn't heard in this company. And somebody would say like, oh, go away. You should just be grittier. And like, that's not at all the message. And I think it took me a little while to catch on because like it never even occurred to me that that grit could be, you know, misused in that way um, as an excuse really for like not providing people like voice and support. So I, I really, really do, do, you know, think that that's an important like myth to, um, to work against. Um, And if you want a little science on this, you know, when people are at their best, it is when they are heard, it is when they are seen and it it like, and it's not in a superficial right way. Like, so what real diversity inclusion means, I think is having voices that don't always agree. And that is why I've been trying, you know, I'm a human, but I'm also the head of character lab. So I'm, trying to be, um, you know, humble and to listen and not 
try to just get everybody to agree with me, right? So, so when there are critics or when grid is misused, I think I am also trying to, you know, listen first before speaking. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product, though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so... We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. It strikes me. I mean, it has been a while now that grit has existed in the world as a concept, and I'm sure that your own thinking has grown around it. And I'm curious where it has grown the most. Aside from the things that we were just talking about, right, like needing to speak um, even more uh, loudly about, you know, uh, equality and uh, structural opportunities, et cetera, I think my discovery is that perseverance sounds like it's the half of grit that's harder, right? Like passion and perseverance for long-term goals. Like, okay, how do I learn to be more resilient or do that really challenging practice that Angela described? But I think the passion part of grit is even harder. And for example, I just taught a class of 60 undergraduates. I called this class Grit Lab. And at the beginning of the course, these 60 young people, they're age 18 to 22, they took a version of the grit scale. And just like all the other data sets that I've collected, actually perseverance scores ended up being um, at, at the baseline actually higher than passion scores. In other words, People, I think, often struggle more with having direction than they struggle with having determination. I'll just say that I empathize with this so much because it took me a full decade between 22 and 32 to come to the decision to become a psychologist. So I didn't have that consistency in my um, in my passion that I think characterizes very gritty people. And that has come to me as a realization really like more and more after having written the book. I love that you bring that up, Angela, because in my role as host of a a podcast about careers and career development, I get a lot of emails from young people who write, I don't know what I'm passionate about. How am I supposed to know what I'm passionate about? Like, I'm, I'm ready to do the work. Tell me what to do. Where do I aim? And I, I think a lot about that question. And I kind of think that we are doing kids a disservice, young people a disservice when we tell them that that's just supposed to emerge. They're supposed to listen for, do what you love kids. 
Yeah. Um, follow your bliss, right? Isn't that right? the like most used commencement speech quote ever? I think it's like it's not straightforward, and you can't just follow your bliss. Like you don't even know what it is yet, right? So I think most people would be like, "Yeah, I'd follow my bliss." If anybody would tell me what my bliss is, I think a better way of thinking about passion is that it's not so much discovered as it is developed, and it develops over years. And Jesse, I wonder. Um, if you would just share, I'm just curious, like how you, I, I'm guessing that when you were 15 years old, you weren't thinking like one day I'm going to be the editor at large for LinkedIn, which of course didn't exist, but like, how did you get there? And, and I, I, my, my hypothesis is that it wasn't like a super straight linear path where you knew all of, all of the next steps, um, you know, in advance. I, Angela, I don't mean to refute your hypothesis here, but I, I'm a little bit of a weirdo <laughs> you in that, you know, in the third grade, I wrote an essay about how I wanted to grow up to be a writer. And many decades later, here I am. And I say that because I have this conversation with my wife all the time. And she is the opposite of me. She is roughly the same age as me and still trying to figure out what the thing is. She's done four things over the course of her career. I've done one. I've written. I've written, written, written. Now I host a podcast, but also I write. I'm writing a book. Um, whereas my wife has been a social worker. She's run a nonprofit agency. She's run a summer camp. She's transitioning to something else now. For me, I, I do think there was a way in which I absolutely had to follow my passion, or I, I don't know what would have happened, right? Whereas for my wife, passions enveloped her, and then she leaned into them. It was sort of a push or a pull. Mm. And it leads me to wonder if there are just different ways of being in the world. Here, here's what I think. There are different paths, and some of them are windy. What I try to emphasize to my undergraduates is that I think you are more rare than your wife, and I think that you are very lucky, by the way. Honestly, if I had written an essay in third grade that said, like, I'm going to become a research psychologist, I would have saved a lot of time, like, and I would have just like, gone, gone and done it a little more efficiently. But I think that for most people, you know, the paths tend to be more windy, and they have to learn through... Um, uh, experience. And um, I know I've, I've read a lot of biographies of my favorite writers, and so many of them have said that, for example, if you start off in uh, like journalism, like E.B. White, you know, Charlotte's Web, and I, like started off in, like knew he wanted to be a writer, loved words, and then really didn't like journalism, but he didn't know that, right? Like, and then, you know, then he was like, okay, I love words. And then he tried, uh, and but so there was this calibration that again, was a process that took some years. And then, you know, finally we have E.B. White, right? Creator of the voice of the New Yorker and, you know, author of Charlotte's Web and Stuart Little. But I wonder if there was any calibration or did you kind of like nail it when you were in third grade? I wish that I could say that I nailed anything in my life, Angela. That would be overspeak. <laughs> but I will say, and just to bring it back to grit, I always knew I wanted to be a writer. I feel incredibly lucky that I managed to make my living doing it. But I never believed that I was the most talented writer. Mm. And for a very, very long time, I believed that therefore there was a ceiling to what was possible for me in my career. Why didn't you think you were more talented? Well, you know, I worked at places like Condé Nast next door to The New Yorker, where the writers would sort of like float in and deliver these pieces of journalism that just were, you know, incredibly um, well articulated. And I just thought, well... They do that. I don't do that. I'm not a person who did that. And that's sort of where grit came in because mm. my biggest professional transformation happened when I stopped believing that my best was static 
Mm-hmm. And I started, it, it's very Carol Dweck. It's very mindset oriented. When I started believing that if I applied myself, there was no reason why I couldn't, you know, fill in the blank uh, with my work. I feel like maybe one of the blessings I had growing up is that I, I knew I, I knew for sure I wasn't the smartest person. I mean, probably not even in my homeroom, right? But like, I kind of have this sense that like, you know, it wouldn't put a, a ceiling, um, uh, at least it wouldn't be put as low a ceiling um, as, you know, one might think on, on what you could eventually do. I love thinking about that. You referenced uh, kids uh, a little bit earlier, and it made me think of a question that came in from our audience how does a parent or caregiver help current teenagers see that grit and not just talent is needed in today's society to succeed, especially because of the internet, social media, and instant gratification that comes with it? People do not share videos um, or posts about like their really, really boring and hard practice, right? Like they, they basically, we share with each other, no matter what our age is, we tend to share our highlight reels, right? If you look on YouTube for footage of people's like unglamorous practice, or if you look like, if you ask the question, like, I want to see all the drafts that came before the final version of this article or this book, they're very hard to find. You know, we hide our mistakes. Like I have drafts of my book that I don't want to share with everyone because they're horrible, right? So, so I think that it is a persistent illusion that excellence is um, is easy. But most of the best writers, you know, Stephen King, like Joan Didion, like Joyce Carol Oates. I mean, they they talk about how torturously hard it is to do anything well. I mean, I think the quote from Joyce Carol Oates, like writing is like pushing a peanut across a dirty kitchen floor with your nose. So how do we get our teenagers to realize that? Um, Here, I'll say this, like there are some now amazing documentaries, you know, The Last Dance, um, even Cheer, which um, I have to say, like I binge watched with my kids. These are documentaries about high performers. And because they are extended long form documentaries, they're not just highlight reels. And, and at least in some way, you can get a kind of behind the scenes look and you do see the, you know, the the like missteps, the mistakes, like the boring hours of practice, even if it's condensed a little bit. And, and I, I think that's, um, you know, one way because 17 and 18 year olds are probably not going to want to, like, for example, read my book about it. And 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 and, and like I said, these documentaries uh, I, in many cases are just like beautifully done. Um, I think that's such a good point. I wonder too, I mean, I don't, don't you think that we have the opportunity as their parents and caregivers to teach them about follow through along the way? Like, how have you done that with your girls? When my kids were about five, um, I asked them to do a hard thing. So um, what is a hard thing? Like a hard thing is something that requires practice to get better. It has uh, the further requirement in, in our family that the hard thing rule says that you can't quit in the middle. So if you do sign up for, you know, tumbling lessons or, you know, like some ballet class, you have to finish what you begin. So I think there is that lesson to be to be imparted. And the third thing I think is really important. I think it differentiates this from being a tiger parent, which I'm not I'm not a huge fan of tiger parenting, honestly. Um, I think that kids should choose uh, what they do um, by themselves. And so the third part of the hard thing rule is that nobody gets to choose your hard thing but you. And the parent can make it multiple choice because one year Lucy said horseback riding. And I was like, we are not that kind of family. I don't like even know where there's a horse, but, um, but, but I do think it could be multiple choice, right? Like, you know, you could, you could play a musical instrument, like 
there is a gymnastic studio within walking distance, like this, this, that, this I can't afford, this I can't afford. But I think many of us, if we reflect about some of the things that we did when we were younger, you know, I think it is good to learn how to practice, learn how to get feedback, learn how to fail, et cetera. I love listening to that, Angela. I'm sitting here thinking, absolutely. My son, Jude's going to do a hard thing. It's going to be piano. <laughs> no, it, right. But if, if, if Jude picks piano, right. awesome. <laughs> right. That will be the, that will be the hard thing for me. Speaking of, I've heard in your description of your hard thing paradigm, which I, I love, and I'm just going to take in my own parenting that it didn't just apply to the children, right? That you and your, your spouse also needed to choose a hard thing and model that. You know, modeling is maybe the most powerful way that human beings teach each other anything, right? The um, the quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson that an organization is the extended shadow of its leader is all about modeling, right? So if you're a parent who says like, oh, it's really important to like care about, you know, racial justice, but then your kids notice like the way you behave and, you know, you're micro expressions or like what you do, what you don't do, what you spend money on, the charitable donations that you do or don't make, um, you know, I think they matter. I think the same for grit, right? So if you say like, oh, I really want you to be, you know, hardworking and not quit what you started, then, you know, you should submit yourself to the same. And that is why I said to my daughters when they were growing up that not only did they have to do a hard thing, but dad and mom had to do a hard thing. Uh, my, my husband was um, and is a real estate the developer. And, you know, he was like, let me tell you that in these financial times, like being a developer is definitely my hard thing. I'm trying to get better. There's lots of setbacks. And then I pointed out that my job was also pretty hard, but, you know, I, I said, look, I'm, I'm doing yoga. Like I, I, I literally go to these classes and think like, what is one thing I can do better, et cetera. So yeah, modeling with intention, I think for grit and for, and for other things that you think are desirable, both as a leader uh, and as a parent is recommended. And I'll just add this, Jesse, you're not modeling perfection. You know, um, like you're not modeling like, oh, I got everything right. I'm always a kind person. I'm always open-minded. You're modeling that you're trying, right? So, you know, that's, I think what your kids need to see. I love that and appreciate that. That was Angela Duckworth. Check out her New York Times bestseller, Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance. Our thanks to the team at Yext for sharing this conversation with us and with all of you. So, are you trying to get grittier? Have you or your kids, if you have them, been exploring hard things? Tell us about it at hellomonday at linkedin.com or post on LinkedIn under the hashtag hellomonday. Or even better, come to office hours this week and let's talk about it. Every Wednesday, I go live with our producer, Sarah Storm. It's our coffee break. We get together at 3 p.m. Eastern. So grab your mug and join us to talk about grit and resilience. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn. The show is produced by Sarah Storm. Joe DeGiorgi mixed our show. Florencia Riando is head of original audio and video. Dave Pond is our technical director. Victoria Taylor and Juliette Ferro display true grit. Our music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. You also heard music from Paddington Bear. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. See you next Monday. Thanks for listening. As, we, as we've spoken, you've referenced um, so many great thinkers. Who's one person we can all read this summer to be a little bit smarter and a little bit more inspired in our own work? 
okay, I'm going to cheat and give you two recommendations for two books and they're not mine. So um, I really do think the best book that's ever been written on the science of practice and how to do it right and how to do it in the smallest amount of time possible is Peak by Anders Ericsson, like P-E-A-K, like a mountain peak is really beautifully written too. And it's relatively recent. And then the the book that is on every desk of every like NFL coach and CEO uh, of a fortune 500 company that I've ever met is Mindset uh, by Carol Dweck. 